0: Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. a Happy holiday. I want, you to, uh, want to welcome you all of you uh, who are here uh, in my presence. I want to welcome all of you who are watching on our YouTube live stream uh, as well, uh, remotely. Welcome to our Arab Rosh Hashanah service, the Feast of Trumpets. Uh, Rosh Hashanah, among other things, celebrates, as we just we were uh, celebrating tonight, the coronation of King Messiah. Indeed, in Jewish tradition, one of the names of Rosh Hashanah is Yom HaMelech, the Day of the King. And whenever a king in Israel was coronated, the shofar would be blown, as we just heard. And we are waiting now that soon coming of, of, of the final, the future Rosh Hashanah, that Feast of Trumpets, when Messiah will return to establish his kingdom. As you read in Daniel 7, verse 13 to 14, which, by the way, is a Rosh Hashanah passage referencing the Messiah, the Son of Man. Where it says, in my night visions, Daniel says, I looked, and before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All the nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. This kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Amen. Now, the key question for us on this Rosh Hashanah, uh, when the books of God's judgment are opened, is how do we enter into this kingdom, and how do we avoid the judgment uh, and come to know and to serve this King? That's what I want us to look at together tonight. And I want to warn. I want to, and I want to warn us from the very beginning that there's a danger here. Uh, in fact, one of the most frightening passages uh, for me as a Messianic rabbi uh, is Matthew seven, twenty-one to 23, where Yeshua the Messiah says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into my kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty, mighty works in your name? And I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You workers of iniquity. This passage keeps me up at night. I think that there are people, many people, Yeshua says, who will be surprised to find that one day, though they thought they were safe before God, they were not. This passage says there will be many people who on that day will be rudely awakened and surprised. They thought they were on the road that leads to heaven, but the reality is they were on the road to That leads to hell. And that's frightening. And I wish I could have this conversation one-on-one with every one of you. And if I could, uh, I would tell you that spiritual deception is entirely possible. And don't miss the setting here in in the Sermon on the Mount. Yeshua is not talking here to atheists or to agnostics or to pagans or to heretics. No. He's talking to his fellow Jews. He's talking to religious people. Devoutly religious, many of whom were deluded into thinking that they were saved when they were not. And the people who be shocked on the day, we discovered that they're not going to heaven. So this passage is telling us it's possible to fool ourselves when it comes to our spiritual condition. It's possible to fool ourselves when it comes to life's most important question. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4 says, The God of this world, Satan, is blinding the minds of the unbelievers. He blinds minds. And one of the ways he does this is by convincing people that their salvation is sure when it's not. And often, tragically, in contemporary uh, churches and messianic synagogues, uh, in their desire to reach as many people as possible uh, with the gospel, we've maligned and misrepresented uh, and minimalized the gospel. We pared it down to a shrink-wrapped presentation, whereby if you can get someone to say all the right things back to you uh, and, and to pray things back to you, we pronounce them saved, and then we move on. I heard a story a while back of this little four-year-old kid uh, who was watching one of those old cartoon shows of Tom and Jerry. Remember Tom and Jerry? Tom's the cat who's always after Jerry the mouse. And in this cartoon, in this particular episode, Tom was thrown into hell for something bad he'd done to Jerry. And that scared this little four-year-old kid uh, quite a bit. And he came up to one of the deacons in his church. And the deacon looks at him and says, well, you don't want to go to hell, do you? And the kid said, no. Well, pray this prayer after me. Dear Yeshua. Dear Yeshua. Of course, they didn't say Yeshua. (laughs) Uh, I know I'm a sinner. Little kid repeats. I know I'm a sinner. I believe that you died on the cross for me. Uh, I believe you died on the cross for me. I receive you into my life, Yeshua. I receive you into my life. Amen. Amen. And then the deacon said, son, you are saved. And you never have to worry about hell again. Now, maybe he wasn't, but maybe he wasn't. But the point is that deacon had no way of knowing that. He had no business giving that little kid, the little boy, what could turn out to be false assurance. Did you ever wonder why the so-called sinner's prayer is found nowhere in the Bible? Did you ever wonder why Yeshua had never led anyone in the sinner's prayer? When, uh, but we've invented these canned presentations and then pronounced anyone saved who repeats the words of the magic formula. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Yeshua said, You'll know a true follower of mine by their fruits, not by whether they repeat a prayer. But by relying on these formulaic prayers, we've taken the lifeblood out of the gospel. We put Kool Aid in its place. We never wonder why churches and synagogues in America are filled with, with nominal, lukewarm believers and carnal people who are not believers at all. Because they do not have a changed heart. On the overhead. My message to you tonight is very simple. Spiritual deception is entirely possible. And spiritual deception is eternally dangerous. That's what Yeshua is saying in Matthew 7. Uh, So there are many confessing believers, Yeshua says, who are not true believers at all. It's possible to be hearing my voice. Some even here could be hearing my voice. May even possibly fall into that category. So on this era of Rosh Hashanah, when the books of our lives and the books of our future destiny are opened, we need to examine ourselves because we tend to gravitate towards that which is easy and popular. So Yeshua warns us in Matthew 7 verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard That leads to life. And there are few who find it. Yeshua says here there's a wide gate. It's spacious and inviting and easy. It makes few demands. And imposes few restrictions. And it accommodates the crowd. It's attractive and it's inclusive. No judgments. No rules. Very few regulations. Few requirements. Now don't miss this. What Yeshua is describing here, it's a religious road. The context here is Yeshua is speaking to a religious audience, devout Jews. The point is, a road, that's, it's a road that's religious that doesn't require too much from you. Likewise, there's a religious road promoted in many congregations and ministries and pulpits today that makes grandiose promises at minimal cost. It he promises health and wealth and success and your best life now. All it requires is a one-time decision. And you never have to worry again uh, about God's commands or his holiness. You've got your ticket. You're on your way to heaven. And your sin, it'll be tolerated along the way. Because it's a wide road. And the overhead. Yeshua says the gate of salvation is narrow. Narrow. The word here means, in Greek, it means to press in. Uh, it means to groan, uh, to press through. As if you're under a trial under a trial or, or persecution. And the scripture is teaching here that the way of Messiah is hard to follow. Likewise, in Luke 14, verse 26, Yeshua says, If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If anyone, anyone does not bear his own cross and come after me... He cannot be my disciple. And then in Luke 14, 33, he says, those of you who don't give up everything, you cannot be my disciple. Now, someone likes to argue that these verses, well, they're just for the mature, advanced believers. But don't miss this. This was people's introduction to Yeshua. This was foundational for what it means to be a Yeshua follower, to be a disciple, to be a Messianic believer. On the overhead. This isn't praying a prayer. No. This is laying down your life. This road isn't for those who want a cheap and easy way to heaven. While indulging in all the pleasures of earth. Because that road is leading to destruction. To judgment. That's what awaits the easy, popular, comfortable, ever so crowded road. But the narrow road leads to life. And it begs the question... For all of us tonight, which road am I on? All you young people out there, what road do you want? Moms and dads, what road do you want? Singles, single adults, what road do you want? Seniors, what road are you on? Not only is the narrow road of Messiah hard to follow, but the way is hated by many. Yeshua tells his disciples in Matthew 10, verse 17... You're going to to go out like sheep among wolves. Uh, And they're going to flog you in the synagogues. Uh, And they'll drag you before governors and kings. Brother will deliver brother over to death. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. You know, many people say, well, we don't need to witness to anybody. We just need to start living like Yeshua would, living a good life, and then the people in the world will be drawn to us. On the contrary, this passage says the opposite. This passage says the more we live like Yeshua, the more the world will hate us because the world hated him because his ways are not the ways of this world. So we tend to gravitate toward that which is easy and that which is popular. And then on the overhead now, We can all too easily profess publicly what we don't possess personally. And after a warning then about the wide and the narrow gate, Yeshua then says this in Matthew 7, verse 15. It says, beware of the false prophets who come to you. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. By their fruits, you shall know them. Uh, Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, a good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. And every tree that doesn't bear good fruit, what happens to it? It's cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruits, you shall know them. Yeshua was talking here about false professors of Messianic faith, people who claim to have Messiah, but don't. Same thing we saw in verses 21 to 23 above. Lord, did me do all these things in your name? And Yeshua says, I never knew you. So you can be steeped in religiosity and you still be clouded and deceived as to your spiritual reality. Yeshua says, true followers of mine will bear fruit. Meaning especially the fruits of the spirit. Uh, by which you're transformed from within. Uh, and your life is now characterized uh, by love. Joy, these things we're going over in our, in our Saturday morning uh, sessions here. Peace, goodness, faithfulness, kindness, gentleness, long-suffering, self-control. So how do you tell followers of Yeshua from the, those who are just superficial followers? True followers from superficial followers. Yeshua says, look at the fruit of their life. He says in John fifteen 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. A good tree will bear good fruit. A Yeshua follower bears the righteousness of Yeshua. The truth of Yeshua, the love of Yeshua. If you don't see truth and love and the righteousness of Yeshua in your life, then it's questionable whether you are a follower of his. And the overhead. The way of Messiah is always fruitful. And the way of Messiah is always faithful. Matthew seven twenty one, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Rosh Hashanah celebrates the coming kingdom and coordinates Messiah as the coming king. But Yeshua says here that the only ones who actually enter my kingdom are the ones who do my Father's will. Well, wait a minute, David. Did you just, didn't you just, did you just say that works are involved here in salvation? No, don't worry, I didn't say that. Yeshua did. <laughs> Yeshua said, only those who obey my Father in heaven will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he says in John fifteen 14, you're my friends if you do what I command. And then in Matthew 3, 8, John the Baptist says, produce fruits in keeping with repentance. So on the overhead, lack of fruit, lack of obedience, lack of deeds is a sign that you may be living in spiritual deception. Because we can profess publicly what we do not possess personally. And we can assume salvation without having a biblical foundation for it. Yeshua says, Matthew seven twenty four, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, he's like a wise man who builds his house on the rock and the rains fall and the floods come and the winds blow and beat on that house but it does not fall because it's founded on the rock but anyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them he's like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand and the rains came and the floods rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall on the overhead two builders both heard Messiah's words. Both built a house. Both houses look exactly the same on the outside. But when the storm comes, one stands, one crashes. Why? The difference is the foundation. The foundation that stands, Yeshua says, is everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Hearing God's word putting into practice is the proper foundation is built first on the words of Yeshua the Messiah he's talking here to a whole group of people who had built a system of traditions and rule of men they believed if they scrupulously followed they'd be okay with God but Yeshua says you've missed the whole point point." and when it's likewise possible for us to build a whole host of traditions and ideas and opinions of men that we think equate with salvation, but aren't actually in the word of God. So, for example, what must I do to be saved? You invite Messiah into your life? Accept Messiah into your heart? Neither of these phrases is ever mentioned in the word of God. What does the word of God say? Yeshua says, Matthew four seventeen, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The first sermon Peter ever proclaimed on the day of Pentecost. And Shavuot wrote, he says, repent. On the overhead. The way of Yeshua is dependent on his word. And is obedient to his, to his word. Matthew seven twenty four Again, everyone who hears these words of mine. And puts them into practice. Is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the overhead here. Yeshua and then closes the Sermon on the Mount by saying this. In essence. There's a storm Of holy judgment coming. It's headed towards this nation. It's headed towards each one of us. And the only one who will stand. In that day. Is the one who has both heard the words of Messiah. And put them into practice. Because as Peter says in Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind. By which we must be saved. So we need to hear these words of Yeshua tonight. This era of Rosh Hashanah. As we examine our souls. We're commanded in Scripture to do this. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Paul says, Paul says, examine yourself. He says, test yourself. See if you're in the faith. Now for those of you, and hopefully the vast majority of you, who've been graciously saved, the last thing I want to do tonight... Uh, is to cause you to doubt your salvation. That's the last thing I want. I pray tonight you'll be reminded of the beauty of your salvation. And it means for God to have saved you from your sins. But if you're hearing my voice and you've not yet been saved, or you think you have, uh, but you've not, then the last thing I want for you tonight is to feel complacent and to feel comfortable. If you're not saved, my prayers of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Messiah will convict you tonight and lead you to Yeshua and lead you to say with King David in Psalm 139, verse 23. Search me, Lord, and know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So, I want us to look now at the central event of all of history, the crucifixion. What happened on that that on that execution stake, 2,000 years ago? And how does that bring us salvation today? And we'll see this really covers three key events on the overhead here. Uh, salvation is possible only because of these three things. Number one, the Father is satisfied. Number two, the Son is sacrificed. Number three, the Spirit is sent. So, on the overhead, let's start with the Father being satisfied. In order to understand the cross, the tree, the execution state, we must start with God, not with man. And God uh, must act at all times in absolute consistency with the perfection of his character. So let's look at his character on the overhead. First, God is sovereign overall. He creates all things. Uh, uh, he knows all things. He sustains all things. He owns all things. Uh, Deuteronomy 10.14. Behold, the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of heaven. The earth and all that's in it. God is sovereign. He has authority. He's the author of creation. Everything belongs to him, including you and you and me. The Lord created you. He sustains you. He knows you. He has authority over you. And the overhead. Number two, the Lord is holy. He's unique. He's set apart. He's completely other. There's no one like him. He's holy above all and righteous in all his ways. His integrity is unquestionable. He's perfectly just. He is too too pure to allow sin in his presence. God always does what's right. In his very very nature, he's unable to do that which is wrong. He's just in all his wrath. Because the Lord's holy and righteous and just, a wrathful response to evil is required from him. It's inherent in his very nature for an infinitely holy God to hate that which is evil. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. God is just. Lord Yeshua will be revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and don't obey the gospel of our Lord Yeshua that be punished with everlasting destruction and shed out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Here's a frightening reality revealed in the scriptures. God will judge you and me. And he'll be just. He's a holy God who cannot tolerate sin. He hates wickedness. He is indignant towards sinners. And we all hear this, this popular phrase, "Well, oh, God hates sin, but, but he loves the sinner. It's a very popular phrase, but it's not biblical. The Bible actually says God hates sinners. Look at Psalm five, verse five. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes, Lord. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful men. Throughout the book of Psalms, we see God's wrath towards the liar. His hatred for evildoers. The book of Romans confirms the same thing, that God's wrath rests on those who sin. Look at Romans 1 verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. All throughout the scriptures... We see that the Lord in his holiness shows wrath both towards sin and sinners. And to be just, he must judge the sinner. Of course, we don't like that, do we? We don't think that's fair. Uh, Because we have a man-centered perspective of sin. But the real issue is the one who's being sinned against. You know, you sin against a man, yeah, you're guilty, maybe do some penalty. But if you sin against an infinitely holy God you are worthy of infinite punishment. So we need a God-centered perspective on sin. One sin in the garden was worthy of death. We've committed tens of thousands of them. And God is holy. And so the penalty for sin is death. Romans 3.23 All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Now, thankfully, these aren't all of God's attributes. Because he's also loving towards his creation. Because God is love. Now, do you feel the tension there? How does this square? God's love, God's wrath. Hold on to that tension for a minute. Now become come to man, the sinfulness of man. We tend to view our sins as kind of isolated uh, and, and relatively minor. Yeah, I've done some bad things. I've made some bad decisions. But our problem is much deeper than that. The Bible teaches we have denounced God's sovereignty. We've rebelled against his authority. We know what God says. But ever since the Garden of Eden, we're going to go our own way. Lord, you don't tell me what to do. You know, I do what I want to do. And we spurn the Lord's authority. This is the God who beckons storm clouds and they come. This is the God who says to the wind, uh, you blow here. And he, says, and, and he says to the waves, you stop there. And they obey. This is the God whom everything in all creation responds to in perfect obedience. And yet when he says something to us, you and I have the audacity to look back at him and say no. We want to be our own Lord and our own God. On the overhead. We rebel against the Lord's sovereignty. We dishonor his holiness. We despise his righteousness, Romans three verse ten. As it's written, there's no one righteous, no not one. There's no one who understands who seeks after God. All have turned away, all have become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. The feet are swift to shed blood. The ruin, uh, ruin, and, and, and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no yerat Hashemayim. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So, our deserving God's wrath? We deny it. And then this leads to I'm calling in the overhead the divine dilemma. Here's the problem of Scripture: How can a just God save rebellious sinners who are justly due His wrath? That's the issue around all of the, all of all of scripture revolves. Look at Proverbs seventeen fifteen. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So God Himself is saying here: If you justify the wicked, uh, the the guilty; if you say the guilty are innocent, then you're an abomination to the Lord. But as we've just seen, we're guilty. And salvation is only possible because God nonetheless says we're innocent. So how can God say to us in our guilt that we're innocent? When doing so, according to Proverbs 17, would be an abomination to himself. Do you see the divine dilemma in God saving sinners? How can his judgment that we deserve be satisfied? How can God's righteous wrath towards sinners be satisfied? That is, how can a just God be merciful towards rebellious sinners like us who are due his wrath? And this may not be the question that we as modern men whether we ask in our rebellion, but it is the question of the Bible. How can God be just and still let all us rebels into heaven? How can the Lord be gracious to us without compromising his holiness? How can he extend his love without at the same time condoning uh, our sin that is, how can the Lord judge sin and that also save the sinner? Do you feel the tension? and to resolve that tension, this brings us to the execution state, to the cross because first and foremost the cross is concerned with a demonstration of god's character. The purpose of the tree of the cross is to show us the righteousness of god romans three twenty five God presented the Messiah as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith, if they have faith in Yeshua. Well, this is saying that in his patience and in his mercy, God has been passing over the sins before the time of Messiah. Sins that were not duly punished. Look at, for example, 2 Samuel 12. We have here King David. Guilty of adultery, murder, lying. The prophet Nathan comes to him and confronts him. And 2 Samuel 12, 13, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replies, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. God takes away his sin. Is this justice? No. Uh, If a judge lets go a premeditated murderer, we demand that that judge be immediately thrown off the bench. This is not justice. So how can God forgive us? Do we realize the greatness of the one we have sinned against? For the Lord to ignore our sin would be to compromise his justice and his holiness. So before the cross is for our sake, the cross is actually first for God's sake. The cross is the vindication of the character of God. The tree is God showing his righteousness and his justice due to sin. So Yeshua, he died not just for you and me, but also to satisfy God's justice. The cross is a public demonstration of just how severe sin is in the sight of God. The cross is the character of God on display, showing that sin is infinitely offensive and that God is infinitely glorious. It took the death of the Son of God. It took Yeshua being willing to take on our sins and be judged for them to satisfy God's justice and make a way for us to be saved. How does God satisfy his justice and save sinners at the same time? This leads to the doctrine of atonement. The son is sacrificed. God satisfies his justice by sacrificing his son in the place of us sinners. On the cross, Yeshua takes on our sin. It's like like the sins of Israel were placed on the scapegoat uh, on Yom Kippur. Uh, And if it becomes sin, God then judges Yeshua and pours out his wrath and his judgment, the wrath and judgment due to you and to me, upon his son. Yeshua suffers in our place. Uh, He died the death we should have died. And he paid the price we could not pay. So, on the overhead, the gospel is the answer to the divine dilemma. God can be merciful to us without compromising his character because Yeshua took our place. And God poured out his justice and his judgment on him as our substitute. God does not overlook our sin, he judges our sin. But if you are in Messiah Yeshua, through repentance, and through trust, then God judges our sin in the person of Yeshua, his son, who died on our place on the tree. The blood of his sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, to which all the prior animal sacrifices pointed, his blood being our atonement, our Yom Kippur atonement. As the Torah says in Leviticus 17.11, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So there must be a blood sacrifice. And Yeshua is the prophesied suffering servant who sheds his blood and dies on our behalf to take on our sins. Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, that punishment was on him. And by his wounds were healed. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was made a guilt offering. By knowledge of him, my righteous servant will justify many and bear their iniquities. Yeshua is the prophesied suffering servant Messiah of Isaiah 53. <clears throat> in Second Corinthians 5.21, sums it all up. God made him who had no sin to be sin, to be a sin offering for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Now, who is this Yeshua? Which is key to understanding why he's the only one qualified to take on our sin and to be our substitute. Yeshua the Messiah is fully God and fully man. First, he's fully man. He's fully human. So that he could be our perfect representative. And he could fully identify with us and suffer every temptation we've had and yet without sin. So he can be our great high priest. Representing us before the Father. And the second, He's fully God. Hebrews 1, verse 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His, pers- of his being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. When God brings His firstborn into the world, He says, Let all God's angels worship Him. About the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. So notice here, eight things, and there's one passage, eight things confirming the deity of Messiah, Yeshua, the Son of God. First, it's called the radiance of God's glory. Glory, kabod in Hebrew, it's an attribute that's unique to only God. But Yeshua, we're told, is the radiance of that glory. Second, the text says he's the exact representation of the being of God. He's the perfect stamp or image or manifestation or representation of God. He shares the very being or essence of God. Third, Yeshua sustains all things, holds all things together by his word. He has the status as the creator and the sustainer of the world, which is a trait unique to God, ascribed only to him. Fourth, it says he's superior to the angels. Fifth, the angels actually worship him, but only God receives worship. Yet God the Father directs the angels to worship Yeshua, clearly showing his deity. Sixth, we're told, about the Son. he says, your throne, O God, will last forever. So Yeshua here is expressly called God. Seventh, he reigns over all. And eighth, his throne will last forever. All uniquely divine traits. Also told in John 1, of course, that He is the Word who is God, who is in made flesh, and who creates all things. Colossians 1:15 says that the Son is the image of the invisible God. For in him all things were created. Things on heaven and earth, visible and invisible. All things have been created through him and for him. He's omnipotent. The wind and the seas obey him. He's omniscient, he knows what you're thinking. He's eternal, he's the in the beginning was the word. He will he's the judge. The gospel claims over and over again he'll judge the earth. He's sovereign, divine authority. Mark two says to forgive sins. And all these, in many ways, other ways, he's clearly God. And he himself says it over and over again. John ten thirty he says, I and the Father are one. John eight fifty eight, before Abraham was born, I am, using the divine name from the burning bush. Thomas confesses, My Lord and my God. Paul says in uh, Colossians 2 9, In the Messiah, all the fullness of the deity dwells in him in bodily form. So on the tree, on the execution stake, we see Yeshua, fully God, fully man, dying in our place. As you read in Philippians 2 verse 5, In your relationships, have this mindset, the same mindset as Messiah Yeshua, who being in the very nature of God, Did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him a name above every name, that at the name of Yeshua, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess. The Yeshua the Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, as both God and man, Yeshua was uniquely qualified to represent both God and man and mediate between the two. This is the person of Yeshua. Now, what about his purpose? Finally, why did he come? Luke nineteen ten. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He lived a sinless life; no guilt in him. John three five. In him there is no sin. He's perfectly obedient to the Father in all things, on the overhead. He came to live a sinless life and to die a substitutionary death to make atonement for your sins. He took the payment of sin due to us upon himself to be our perfect sin offering, our substitute, to take our place, to stand where we deserve to stand and to endure what we deserved to endure. He himself, he had no sin to pay for, so he deserved no death. Oh, the wages of sin is death, but he had no sin. So on the cross, he had no sin of his own to pay for. So whose sin is he paying for on the tree? For yours, for mine. Yeshua is our substitute, dying in our place. First Peter two twenty four. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So on the overhand, get the picture here. This is God Himself in the flesh, assuming the identity of sinners on the cross standing in the place of sinners as a substitute. And this is where we see the whole picture coming together and the divine dilemma solved. You look at the cross, you see all of God's holy characteristics. You see love, you see wrath, you see justice, you see mercy. They're all there. Does God hate sinners? Yes. Look at the cross. When Yeshua died on the cross, he wasn't just dying for sin. He was dying in the place of sinners. We have a tendency to think of sin as something outside of us. You know, you you lie, uh, you cheat, uh, you lust, uh, whatever it is. We think of sin as outside of us. And then when Yeshua went to the cross, he died for those sins. But the reality is, sin is not outside of us. Sin is at the core of who we are. We are sinful to the core. And when Yeshua went to the cross and, and endured the divine wrath due to sin, it wasn't just due to sin, it was due to sinners. He was standing in your place. And in that holy moment on the cross, he was taking that divine wrath due to you and due to me upon himself. So on the overhead, does God hate sinners? Yes. Look at the cross. But does God love sinners? Yes. Look at the cross. He did all this for you and for me. Out of his infinite love, he endured the wrath of God in place of you and me. And the overhead. This is the wonder of the cross. For chose forth Yeshua steadfast love and his faithfulness. Because on the cross, God's righteousness and his peace, they kiss. In the midst of judgment, God remembers mercy. And the overhead. This is divine satisfaction through divine sacrifice. And as a result, salvation through God's Son is achieved. And on the overhead again. The essence of sin is that man substitutes himself for God. We assert our independence from God. Uh, We put ourselves in the place where God deserves to be. The essence of salvation is God substitutes himself for man. God in the person of Messiah sacrifices himself for man. And puts himself where only man deserves to be. Again, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Divine satisfaction through divine sacrifice. At the tree, at the execution stake, God the Father expresses his judgment on sin, and then God the Son endures the Father's judgment against sin. And therefore, at the cross, God enables salvation for sinners. Praise be his name that we deserve his wrath, we receive his mercy. And because of Yeshua's sacrifice, we say again in Philippians 2, verse 9, because of this, God exalts him to the highest place. Uh, He gives him a name above every name. That the name of Yeshua, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess, that Yeshua the Messiah is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Yeshua is crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. Rosh Hashanah celebrates the coronation of King Messiah. Happy Rosh Hashanah. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's all stand and pray. I'm at the music team to come up, please. Lord, we, we pray to you tonight, Lord. We thank you for this Rosh Hashanah. And on this Rosh Hashanah, Lord, we thank you for Yeshua, who's our Messianic King. Yeshua, you came to seek and save the lost. Especially the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You took the payment of sin due to me. You took it upon yourself. To be the the perfect sin offering. To be my substitute. To be my atonement. You took my place. You died the death I should have died. And you paid the price I could never pay. You bore my sin in your body on the execution stake. Or by the tree of death became the tree of life at Chaim. You, Yeshua, solve the divine dilemma where God can be both just and punish and punish sin and at the same time be loving and save sinners. You, Lord, hate evildoers. Look at the cross. The wrath of you poured out on Yeshua who became sin for us and that you love sinners. Look at the cross. You died for us. You endured for all this for us. Lord, help us tonight to see the wonder of the cross. where God's justice and his mercy embrace. Where righteousness and peace kiss. In the midst of your judgment, Lord, you remember mercy. You make a way for me if I repent. If I trust in you, Yeshua, and truly surrender my life to you. Not just saying a prayer, but truly giving you my life. On this basis, Lord. On this basis, Lord. Inscribe my name, this Rosh Hashanah, in your book of life. The Lamb's book of life. Yeshua, our King, you are exalted to the highest place. You have a name above every name. Uh, We bow our knee. We confess our tongue that you, Yeshua, are Lord. We acknowledge you, Yeshua, our King of kings and Lord of lords. We crown you King of our hearts tonight. And we pray this all in your holy name. Amen. B'Shem Yeshua. Hab Tzumeach. Shalom.